I want to begin this morning with a little doctrinal lesson. I, I know I get some criticism about doctrine and history, and this contains both. Just bear with me. It's a difficult, this doctrine is a d- difficult concept to grasp, so difficult that an early church father named Tertullian, who lived in the late second and early third centuries, made up a new word to describe it. The concept is the truth that Christianity has only one true and living God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So which one is God? Well, they all are. The term that Tertullian made up is trinity or triunity. It's a fundamental, indispensable, indeed essential truth of the Christian faith, but very difficult to understand. To be clear, we do not have three gods. We have one God who exists eternally in three equal persons. You see, the Scripture is clear that we have one God, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There is one God. Christianity is not polytheistic or even tritheistic has been leveled against us. We are monotheistic. But the Bible clearly states the deity or the godness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Mind blown. So through the years, people have tried to make sense of the concept, usually doing error to the truth. For example, an early guy named Sibelius came up with this idea that God existed not in three persons, but in three modes, largely uh, the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit today, the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Holy Spirit in regeneration. It was called modalism, and it clearly denies the Trinity because it denies three equal persons eternally existent. In fact, Tertullian was responding to this Sibelius when he made up or coined that term. Others, trying to grasp the concept, use analogies. You've perhaps heard of some. They can be helpful, but in the end, they fall woefully short. For example, you've perhaps heard of the egg illustration. There are three parts to an egg, we, the, the shell, the white, and the yolk, and just like that, there are three parts to God. Problem. That's called partialism and is rightly condemned. You see, the shell and the white and the yolk have different properties. They are not the same, and yet the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each fully and equally God, not partially so. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. So trying to describe the Trinity has proven to be somewhat elusive. The best summary I have ever seen goes like this. It's on the screen. Um, You see, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Best I can do. Well, the Bible clearly teaches the Trinity, even if difficult to comprehend. And so early church councils came up with creeds uh, to, to try and teach the Trinity. A couple of early examples are the Nicene 
Tantanopal Creed of 381, 382, or the uh, Athanasian Creed. I won't take the time to read them, but I, but, but, but I commend them to you. They're excellent, just in case you want to read more history and doctrine this afternoon. Okay. So why do I start with this truth today? Because I want you to be most encouraged, because I know of no greater truth than this. Our eternal triune God, infinitely majestic and glorious, is intimately and effectively involved in your salvation. Please understand that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are involved in your faith, leading you to salvation, and the result is your salvation is most precious and eternally Secure, that means you'll never lose it. The ultimate purpose of all human history is the glory of God, and it is displayed most glorious in the salvation of His people through the cross. We are studying 1 John. We, we have found a, a group of secessionists, was what I've been calling them, false teachers who had left the church. They had not remained in the church. They thought they knew more. Among other things, like not obeying the commands of Christ or not loving other Christians, they denied, perhaps most egregiously, they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh. So the Apostle John writes to accomplish two primary purposes. First, obviously, is to expose their teaching and to defend the Christian faith, which is actually, in essence, what I've just tried to do, to defend the Christian faith. And second is to assure his readers, are you listening? You know the truth, and so you should remain in the truth. To remain in the truth brings God greatest glory, and I promise will bring you continued greatest joy. told you a couple of weeks ago that there were only 10 commands in all of 1 John. That's relatively few. The first one, for example, was found in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not, it was a negative command, do not love the world. I also told you last week uh, this idea of remaining or abiding was important to John. I mean, he uses the word 24 times in this short letter of 105 verses. Well, today, he gives us the next three commands, and they all use positively that word remain. It is a command to remain or to abide in the truth. He is saying to you today, do not depart. Do not follow this world's fallen system and its enticements. Don't follow those who are leaving, those who are seceding from the church. Don't follow their false teaching like they've got something new for you. Don't do it. Remain in the truth. How do we do it? How can we possibly do it? How do we remain faithful in the midst of a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the faith where so many, in fact, some who have been among us are deserting the faith, where so many are not remaining? John tells us in this most glorious text today, look at it with me, noting the three commands to abide and the power, listen, the power that you have to abide because the triune God has been involved 
and continues to be involved in your salvation. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 to the end of the chapter say this. As for you, this, that's a contrast. He's just talked about the false teachers who are denying the deity of Jesus. But as for you, let that abide in you what you heard from the beginning. What is that? Well, we'll talk about it. And what you... Um, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he, he himself made or promised to us. Eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you remain. As for you. The, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, finally, you abide in him. That's the second time he said it. Now, little children, just in case you didn't hear it the first two times, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. It's a suggestion that those who have departed will shrink in shame at his coming. It may be the popular thing to do now. It may be the thing that everyone else is doing, departing, walking away. It will not ultimately be the thing to do. It will bring you shame. Last verse, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who... Also, who practices righteousness is born of him. That kind of ties into the text that follows, so we'll save that one, Lord willing, for next week. As we have seen, the Apostle John speaks in terms of contrast, in fact, stark contrast, light and darkness, truth and lies, love and hate, love of the world versus love of the Father. For John, you are either of the light and of truth and love and the Father, or you are you're of darkness, of lies and hate, and frankly, you're of the evil one. Last week, we saw John make then a stunning declaration regarding these false teachers who at one point who had been part of the church who had walked away. He makes a stunning declaration that they are antichrist. They stood opposed to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Stark contrast. Don't do it. He draws the next contrast. As for you, remain. You see, they left the faith. They denied the Christ. As for you, remain. I know. I know it's tempting to quit. I know the Christian life, whoever promised you it's easy was lying. It's not easy. I know. I get it. It's tempting to quit, to walk away as some have done. But he tells us three times in this passage, remain. And then he gives us the incredible truth that we have the power. You have the power right now, as difficult as it may seem to you, you have the power within you to remain by the indwelling presence of the Spirit, to remain in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the entire Trinity has been involved in your salvation. I'll give you the outline that we're going to look at today. We're going to he's going to tell us, abide in the truth that you know. You know the truth. Don't listen to those who would lie to you. You know the truth. Don't be deceived by the secessionists. And then he says, secondly, abide in him through the anointing. We will find that is the Holy Spirit. And abide in him because, are you ready? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. You want to be found faithful. 
First, abide in the truth you know. Or better, let the truth you know abide or remain in you. That's what John said. As for you, unlike those who have left, as for you, let, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Now, now, now what is that? You see, John uses the word beginning in a number of different ways in his gospel and in his letters. He speaks of the beginning of creation, for example. He even talks about the beginning is before creation. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That was even before creation. He also talks about the beginning of salvation. Context has to dictate the way that he uses the Word. And here, clearly, he means, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning speaks of the beginning of your salvation when you place your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel begins the Christian life. Now, I take a little aside here. Because perhaps you are n- new to this church, just kind of checking us out, maybe either here in person or online, or maybe you're simply considering the claims uh, of the Christian faith. You don't yet call yourself a Christian. I want to make sure that you understand what John means when he speaks of that which they heard and implicitly believed at the beginning of their Christian lives. I want you to understand what we're talking about. Again, everyone agrees he's referring to the Christian faith found in the gospel of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, involved in salvation, the Son of God. Specifically, what Jesus did for us that makes it the gospel, because the word gospel means good news. What makes it good news? Well, the reason it's called good news is because it starts with bad news. The truth is, we needed the good news. It starts with the bad news that we are all sinners, living in rebellion against God. It actually started way back at the beginning, another beginning, the beginning of creation, when our forebears, everyone's ultimate ancestors, this is not a myth, not a legend, right in the Bible, are, uh, we all share the same parents, their names were Adam and Eve. And it starts with their sin. See, God created them perfect, put them in a perfect environment, gave them the task of uh, taking care of the garden. We call the garden Eden. He, he said, it's all for you. You can do whatever you want except one thing. He gave them one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had total freedom. Everything was good. More than that, God called it very good. But apparently it wasn't good enough. Which I would suggest to you is frankly the reason that you sin. Because what you have or what you is not good enough and you always want more. So they ate of the forbidden tree, plunging themselves and all of their descendants, all of humanity, into sin. That includes us. We are all born sinners. I do not have to convince you of that truth. If you've ever had any children, you know that it's true. You know in your heart of hearts you're a sinner. Oh, you, you may have done some good things. I'm not suggesting that you are utterly evil, but sinner you are, disobeying God and His good and perfect laws. And, and, the, and the further bad news is this. There was 
there is absolutely nothing that you can do about your miserable, sinful condition. No amount of good things will suffice. No amount of good that you can do will ever make up for your sin. Your sin, you see, is defined ultimately as rebellion against a good and holy God who happens to be your creator, to whom one day you will give an account. And since he is perfect and just, a just punishment is required for our sin, namely death and eternal separation from God. Frankly, that is all that we deserved. But finally, here comes the good news. In spite of our rebellion, while we were still sinners, Paul writes, God loved us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world. In the midst of our rebellion, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There are lots of verses that tell us who that son is. Make a clear declaration that he is the son of God and that he is God the son. You understand that Jesus did not come into existence when he was born of Mary. He has eternally existed with God as God for all of eternity. But God sent him. God sent him to do something about our sin, the very thing that we could not do. Namely, first Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. While surrounded by sin in every direction, in fact, while tempted uh, in every way as we are tempted, Jesus never sinned. As a consequence, he did not deserve the punishment of death for sin. But as planned, he took our sins in his own body and died on a cross in our place. He took our punishment so that, his, so that through his work on the, on the cross and his resurrection three days later, our sins could be atoned. That, that simply means paid for, covered over. And by simply acknowledging our sin and need of a Savior, by confessing Jesus as Christ, the, the Son of God, the Lord of our lives, turning from our sin and receiving his righteousness in our place, we can actually be saved. We can be redeemed. We can be made new. I don't know if that sounds good to anybody here, but I would say to you, if you are tired of your life and the miserable life that you have made it, I've got good news for you. Jesus came to make you new. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Don't miss what I'm saying. The reason that I began my sermon with this explanation of the Trinity is to show you that the entire Trinity was involved in your creation, in your salvation. God loved this world, this world of people that he created in his image that subsequently rebelled against him. He sent his only son, the second person of the Trinity, to, to die for us so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Further, when you are saved, you get something else. The third person of the Trinity we'll talk about in a moment. I want you to understand God loves you. He wants to forgive you through the work of his son. And I am, listen, I am going to invite you today to ask God to forgive you of your sin and to be your God. And I, I promise you that he will do that. And there will be joy in the presence of the angels in heaven. I realize that 
for most of you, your salvation happened in the past. There was a time that you confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and, and uh, raised that second person um, from the dead. That, that marked the beginning of your Christian life because it begins with the gospel. And so John says to you, are you listening? That which you heard and believed from the beginning, let it remain, let it abide in you. You see, if that which you heard from the beginning abides in you, here's what you get. You get the Father and you get the Son. If, if that which you heard from the beginning abides in you. That, that sounds a little daunting. That sounds a little even confusing, as if my continuing salvation is in my hands. Well, yes and no. Y yes, you must continue to believe the gospel. He's telling us don't turn from it as people are doing by the score today. Don't, don't turn away because, you see, if you leave, if you do not remain, he told us in verse 19 that your going out will be a demonstration of the fact that you are actually never of us. You were never truly saved. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. He, he writes these words, take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I don't want that to happen. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is always calling to you. The culture is always calling to you. Sin is always calling to you. The evil one is always calling to you. Come away. Come away. Don't be deceived. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our salvation, our beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He basically says the same thing. He says, don't give in to an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In fact, he tells us, encourage one another that, that we remain faithful so, so that none of us become hardened by sin's deceitfulness and sin's deceptions. For, now don't miss this for, this is so important, that last verse, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Wow, that puts a lot of pressure on me. Hold on to it. Don't fall away. For if we have become partakers, if we hold fast, and if we don't hold fast, turn it around. What does it say? Then we have not become partakers. We have not become partakers. You have not received the anointing that we'll talk about in a moment. Endurance to the end, some call it perseverance, is proof that you have been genuinely saved. And so he tells us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, let's encourage one another along the way. Which, by the way, is why we need one another. Why we need this gathered assembly that we call church. The gatherings in smaller groups, like life groups or connection groups or core classes that you heard about or children's or, or youth ministries or college ministries or men's and women's ministry. Why do we have so many things going around, on around here? Because we want you to gather. Because we recognize that we need each other. I've been saying this all along. I'm going to say it again this morning. Do not get used to this live stream. I want to say this very gently. Live stream is not the church. It is simply a stopgap. We need to be in each other's lives. I need you to encourage me, and I need to encourage you so that you don't fall away. 
the truth of the gospel remains in you, then further, this is the promise which he himself made. I'm not sure why the NAS has it translated that way. It's actually the word promise. John only uses the word twice in all of his, all of his writings. This is the promise which, which he has promised. Here it is. You ready? Eternal life. Eternal life. I'm saying to you, you can have right now eternal life. This is the promise made from a God who cannot lie. If we believe, we have eternal life. Of course, here's the truth. Everyone has eternal life. It was Lord Byron who said, everyone who is born is born into an awful, and by awful he meant awesome, an awesome existence, because you are born into an eternity and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You're going to live forever. The question is not quantity. The question is quality. The question is where will you spend it? When God promises eternal life in the Scripture, it is a promise of life and the glories of His presence for all Eternity. Again, I'm going to ask you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you have a decision to make. Look at verse 26. He tells us clearly the reason he has written to his readers to include us is to warn us of those who are trying to deceive them. Clearly, these are the secessionists who had departed the faith. They had gone away denying that Jesus was the Christ, just like many have done um, today. But as I said last week, so I, again I say, it, is, it is en- was not enough for them to just deny. They want to take you with them. Have you ever noticed that? It's not enough that they leave. They want you to go with them. I, I, I guess misery loves company. They want to deceive you. It is one thing for people to hear the gospel and not believe. It's another thing to hear and make a spurious profession of faith and then leave. But it is an altogether different thing to deny the faith and seek to take others with you. And we remember John calls them antichrists. I would say to you, if you're going to desert, be man or woman enough to go by yourself. Again, he draws a contrast, verse 27. As for you, the ones not deceived, the ones who had remained in the church, as for you, and then the command, it doesn't actually come until the last couple of words in the verse, abide in him. I'm saying to you, don't walk away. Remain. What you know and what you've known from the beginning of your salvation is true. Between as for you and the Abide in Him. Um, uh, John reminds them of the third person of the Trinity who abides in them, giving them the ability, giving you the ability to remain faithful. Thank God that it is not dependent on your power or your ability to muster up the faith to remain in an ever-increasing faithless world. He's given you His Spirit Look at it. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him. We saw that back in verse 20. The secessionists walked away, proving themselves not to be of the church, not not to be true believers. But as for you, the ones remaining, you have an anointing from the Holy One. That's either the Son or the Father. So that you know what you know is true. You know in your heart of hearts that is true. Lots of discussion about this anointing. Is it the truth that they'd received, perhaps? But that's not the word anointing doesn't usually refer to truth. It usually refers to the Spirit Himself who comes to live in the life of the believer. 
the Holy Spirit, on the moment, at the moment you were saved, came to take residence in your heart and in your life. He literally, I don't get it any more than I get the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit literally lives inside of you. I want to remind you of that. John references this anointing by the Spirit in verse 27. This anointing abides in you, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take a few moments to talk about the Holy Spirit. And often, most overlooked person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity. We talked about the Father's love. We talked about the Son's sacrifice. And now I want to talk about the Spirit's work. In, this, in his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem says of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. I agree. Great statement. As for manifesting the presence of God in the world or his ministry to unbelievers, if you will, we read about it in John 16, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, this is Jesus speaking in the farewell discourse, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, he's going to do this. He will convict the world. That's unbelievers. That's you if you're not yet a Christian. He's convicting you. He's convicting, convincing the world, convicting the world concerning sin, your sin, and, and, and righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and the judgment to come. He's convicting you. I want you to listen. Basically, as it relates to the unbelieving world, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of their own sin, of Christ's righteousness, and the judgment to come. But I want to focus for a moment on the work of the Holy Spirit through His anointing you. If you receive Christ today, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive His anointing to give you some new foundabilities. Consider the following verses. Again, back in the farewell discourse, John 14 to 16, Jesus promised to send the Spirit to them with these words. Look at John 14. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, elsewhere He calls that the Spirit, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him, but you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you know him because he abides with you and incredibly he will be in you. So Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to come and per the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant, he would be in us. And that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And they were all filled with, filled with such that the Holy Spirit was in them, filled with the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do when he fills us? Back to the farewell discourse, John 14. But the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Now, there's some discussion about that as he's talking to the disciples who were later going to, the apostles who later write the Scripture, probably so. But here in First John, he basically says the same thing to us. But the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, like these secessionists, it's true what you believe and what you know is true is not a lie. It's taught you. So here it is. Abide in him. Now, by this, John is not suggesting that we do not need teachers, okay? So please don't fire me. The, the New Testament is filled with the responsibility of pastors and teachers faithfully proclaiming the word of God. In fact, what he, he's, when he says we don't need teachers, uh, when he says 
If he's talking about all teachers, he would be violating that command by writing this letter. Rather, what he is saying is we don't need what these false teachers, this new teaching that they were saying, that is something different from what they had first heard. Are you listening to what I'm saying? What you first heard is true. Don't anyone, don't let anyone tell you that it's not true. Don't let anyone tell you some new truth. Paul said the same thing in Galatians chapter 1. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's a strong word. May he go to hell. Don't listen to him. You have the truth in you that, that you first received, confirmed right now by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus said he is the spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. Trust the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. God, learn to listen to His voice primarily through the Word of God. You have the very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity living within you to guide you and to teach you. You can actually understand the things of God written in the Word of God through the Spirit of God. Every once in a while, an unbeliever will say, you know, I've tried to read the Bible, but I just don't get it. Duh. Because it takes the Holy Spirit for you to be able to understand the Word of God. Certainly there are other things the Spirit does. He is the guarantee of our inheritance, uh, ensuring our faith firm to the end. He distributes spiritual gifts to us by which we serve one another. The, the point for today is this. The entire Trinity is involved in your salvation to include your sanctification until Jesus comes back, which brings us to our last point in our conclusion. A few more comments. We allow the truth we heard from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus, to abide in us. We have the anointing, that is the Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth so that we can abide in Him. And finally, verse 28, now little children, hear John saying this to you, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, because He's coming back, we may have confidence. That word speaks of joyful confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Jesus is coming back and we want to be found joyfully faithful. We want him to find us remaining in the truth, pursuing him through the Holy Spirit. We want to be found abiding in him so that we can have confidence in him. Who's going to be the ones that are, that, that are, that are going to be ashamed at his coming, hiding in fear? It's going to be these secessionists. It's going to be the people who were among us who walked away and said, it's not true. I'm going to go live my own life. They will be ashamed at his coming. We must be ready. I want to say to you, rely on the anointing that you have, brothers and sisters. And as for those of you who are not yet brothers and sisters, who have not yet believed, one final passage I want to read to you from Titus chapter 3 about the Holy Spirit. He saved us, that is God the Father. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done because no amount of good will do it. He saved us, not on the things which we have done, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration that is being made alive in Christ and the renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Do you see the Holy Spirit right now can be involved? Uh, excuse me, the, the three persons of the Trinity can be involved in your salvation right now so that being justified, 
that is declared righteous by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what I want to offer to you today for those who are not yet brothers and sisters. Last thing I'll say about the Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit regenerates people, lost sinners who come to faith in Jesus Christ. He makes you alive. The truth is you are dead in your trespasses and sin. It is impossible for you to believe the gospel without the Spirit's work in your life to regenerate you and make you alive. If you are here and you are, or you are listening in and you have never placed your trust in Jesus, as I said earlier, I invite you to do so today. The Holy Spirit is convicting you. He is calling you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not only will you receive eternal life in the life to come, but right now you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I invite you to believe.